0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 23 of Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast brought to you by myself, Carlos Colazo, and Ben Badler. Uh, we are back to talk about a bunch of things that are going on as we anticipate the baseball season returning. Ben, how's it going, man?
1: Good. It's good. Watching, uh, you know, college baseball season. Feels like it's right around the corner, so just trying to read everything Joe and Teddy have been writing, and it's too much almost for me to (laughs) read all of it. So I feel like I'm just trying to play catch up and and get ready for the season right now.
0: Yeah. I should have had a a bigger hand in our college preview edition of the magazine that's going out because I feel like everyone who's putting together that magazine really has a step up on everybody else in the office on college baseball prep. I am still getting through it. Like, like you said, you kind of are. Um, And actually, as we record this podcast, junior college baseball is underway. So I guess technically amateur baseball is here. Uh, It's being played in the South. Cam Collier has already
1: homered in his junior college debut with Chipola. Um, It's wild, man. Opposite field home run mm -hmm. in Juco for a 17 year old. Yeah. A kid who should be just getting ready for his junior season of high school baseball, but he obviously reclassified will be in this year's draft and off to a a pretty, pretty nice start. It's a pretty beautiful swing.
0: It's nice. And, and like you said, the oppo home run. Like he just kind of flicks his hands at the ball. I know you really like Cam Collier's swing. You've been big on him for a while now, but the fact that he gets to that oppo power so easily, like sometimes I feel like his his lower half isn't even fully incorporated in the swing. And he just has that natural strength or that bat speed or the wrist strength, form strength, just send the ball out. Obviously, it's with aluminum bats, so it's not going to be quite that easy when you're handling a wood bat, but I mean, I've seen him take a pretty impressive BP with wood before and showcase power. So we, we talked about him as being one of the more interesting players on our draft board who, who could move up. And that's like the best outcome possible for your debut Juco game. I mean, he is the most notable junior college player in quite a long time. Again, the, the most noteworthy Juco player in my time covering the draft at B.A., um, I can't wait to see if he keeps this up and just what the feedback is from scouts as their season progresses. A couple of interesting arms on that Chipotle team as well. But um, yeah, we, we're actually seeing real life baseball. It's fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's just a really calm, easy, like you said, loose, relaxed, balanced swing from the left side. It's, it's the same approach in BP, too. He's not up there just trying to pull the ball as far as he can it's yeah. just very calm and relaxed and then all of a sudden the ball is landing in the seats <laughs> whether it's to the pole side or mm-hmm. obviously here the opposite way too it's, it's just a he has big power but it's it's impressive mm-hmm. that he's he, he is a pure hitter first who just happens to have pretty gigantic power for his yeah. age
0: Another hitter that that kind of reminds me of just that approach in BP and blaze Jordan did this as well. He was always a guy who kind of sprayed the ball around, but the the best that I've seen, I think is Jared Kelenic. Like he was a guy that had a ton of power, but in all of his BP I, I thought he did an outstanding job, just kind of spraying the ball all the way around the field, hitting it where it's pitched. Like he never went up there trying to just showcase raw power to the pull side and rip off inner half pitches. I was always very impressed with just his balance up at the plate. Um, so, Wonder if he'll kind of grow into that sort of caliber of player, Cam Collier. Um, I think at the time, Kalanick was pretty clearly regarded as the top pure hitter in the class. It's not going to be the case of Cam in the class that he's in, but we've already talked about how unique and special Termar Johnson is Um but yeah it's it's nice that nice that juco baseball is here i'm sure you guys are excited that there is some baseball being played and even if you can't watch these games live or get down in person or, or stream them you will you should be able to see enough clips on twitter from uh, all the people who are out and about at these events so definitely keep an eye on that um check out all of our preview content on the website i'll link to a lot of this stuff in the show notes so you guys can have easy access if you need um But another thing I wanted to ask you about, Ben, which is not uh, relating to the amateur baseball world, but it is relating to Florida, where a lot of this early baseball is getting started. I was just interested in the Rays split city plan being dead now officially. Uh, Apparently, the MLB has kind of killed that plan. It, It was never official. We'd heard kind of rumblings about Tampa splitting time or the Rays splitting time between Tampa and Montreal it always seemed like a really wacky kind of idea to me. I don't know why any fan base would get behind that or want that or want any part of a plan like this. Nice to see that it's dead from my perspective. Um, but it does kind of just make you wonder how long the Rays will be in Tampa uh, considering They're already trying to leave the, leave the city for half the season, but I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on a plan like this and maybe not even necessarily the Rays specifically, but I don't know how you establish an MLB team in multiple cities and why a fan base would ever want to do that. Like without even getting into all of the, the taxpayer burdens for a stadium you're not using for the, I mean, the most interesting part of the season.
1: It never really struck me as a serious proposal. It it always just seemed like something to use as bargaining or to try to use as bargaining leverage for them like you said it's how, how is a fan how's a fan base can you get behind when your team is not even home for half of its home games it it just doesn't it just seems like a terrible idea i don't i don't understand the benefit
0: at all like you said i mean maybe i was too naive to take it seriously maybe it's just kind of them maneuvering to try and get out of the city in general but um very weird glad it's not happening um Another thing that's been in the news lately is a lot of Hall of Fame discussion. Um, We just found out that only David Ortiz was inducted by the Baseball Writers Association. Uh, There are a lot of conversations and articles being written about steroids and how Bonds and Clemens are now officially not being inducted by the Baseball Writers. There's still a chance both those two could make it in um, with the Veterans Committee. Um, but they've officially gone through the ballot 10 times, have not surpassed 75%. Um, do you have any thoughts on the Hall, Ben? I've, I would say when I started working at Baseball America, or, or maybe a few years before that, I didn't care too much about the Hall. Um, but it, it feels like from my perspective, every year that I'm kind of in the industry and, and thinking about baseball and talking about baseball and writing about baseball, I, I care more and more. And maybe that's just because more of the players who are being discussed on the ballot, I've actually got a history of watching those players when, when I was initially kind of getting into this a lot of these guys I didn't really watch when I was growing up as a kid but now most of these players I definitely saw a ton of so maybe that's why I care um, I personally think that Bonds and Clemens should be shoo-ins the hall I think it's kind of outrageous that they're not in it um, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this or how much do you care about the hall of fame in general I know people have varying degrees of of how much they can deal with it and think about it and how much they just value it um and what are your thoughts on on just david ortiz being inducted in this year's class
1: yeah i i definitely care about it and, and i'll be able to vote in i don't know how many years um in the bbwaa now we at, at, uh, how many years have you been a member i don't know i want to say like six ish, something so like that. I, I think it'd be
0: in 10 years, right? And then you get a vote or is it 15? Yeah,
1: I think it's 10. Okay. We, to be clear to everyone, I, in... I'm
0: not in the association, so I will not have a vote until I get in and I'll have to wait much longer than that uh, if I do. So.
1: Yeah, no, I've made sure that you can't get in. I've, yeah, I, you know, I asked and they said we are that, uh, our they just
0: kind of sent me a quick rejection. They didn't really elaborate, but it's nice to know that you kind of just want to uh, lord your power over me here on this podcast so you can just have that that kind of dynamic so thank you for that Ben
1: so yeah cuz we I, I haven't been in it yeah i haven't been in it for my whole baseball writing career cuz at first i think a, a few of us at at baseball america we we tried to get in and i think they kept saying no <laughs> so eventually they uh they opened it up to uh to us so i haven't been in for for 10 years yet but bullied them into letting you in is that what happened i i don't know i don't know exactly <laughs> what happened but somehow we we got in so the yeah t- to me the hall of fame should be to honor the greatest baseball players of all time and to me there i mean there's i don't think there's any question that bonds clemens i mean a rod like th- these guys are the greatest players of all time yeah i didn't mention a
0: rod but he didn't come very particularly close on his first year on the ballot this year which is again i think it's kind of ridiculous but i can elaborate on my thoughts later but yeah and on. i mean
1: his his is obviously a, in a different situation than bonds and clemens just because of the timing of of what happened with him and obviously now bonds and clemens are off the bb ballot but it it kind of it struck me as and again like I, I i would definitely have voted for bonds and clemens but one of the reactions i saw the, the pretty repeatedly was that the 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 writers should vote in bonds and clemens because that's what that's what the fans would want and i don't know if i don't know if that's actually true like if if we had a fan vote if if just fans baseball fans in general were allowed to vote on the hall of fame what i, I think bonds and clemens ended up in the what the 60 ish percent range for
0: yeah so the final 20... tally i have here david ortiz got 77.9 percent, so he just eclipsed that Bonds got 66% and Clemens was right under that at 65.2%. For a little bit of context here, A-Rod in his first year got 34.3% of the vote.
1: Yeah. So I, I know I haven't seen any public surveys on it, but I, I would imagine that you know just like the majority of Hall of Fame voters do think that those guys should be in the Hall of Fame of about two thirds, right? So I, I would suspect it's, it's probably about a similar breakdown as far as what a fan vote would look like because obviously everybody has and I shouldn't say everybody, but (laughs) a lot of folks have very strong and strident opinions Mm -hmm. on the Hall of Fame. But I don't know that the baseball writers collectively have a different opinion than, than the public at large would on whether you, you just want to keep lording power over
0: people and denying the vote to others i think this is what i'm getting here is
1: you just you just want
0: a, a select very uh elite crew voting and that doesn't well, include just, me and that doesn't include baseball fans apparently
1: well i just don't want you to get in and then have that water down my everybody else can vote but that's what i'm saying is if i think if everybody if all baseball fans could vote mm-hmm. I, I don't know that the results would be any different i actually think it's a yeah pretty pretty accurate reflection of of what how how the general population or general baseball fans would would vote yeah it's it's hard for me to
0: tell because i feel like a lot of our our feel for that is based on social media and i just know there's got to be such a huge majority of baseball fans who have opinions on this who are just not opining on twitter uh, or in instagram comments or on reddit forums like there are just so many baseball fans that are off those mediums or you just can't see them all or you can't kind of uh, in your brain account for the percentages there so i really don't know um i could see it swinging much more because if you, if you just look at kind of the average baseball fan it does skew a lot older than these other than other sports like the nba is much younger in terms of just uh, general fan base or median fan base so i could see I could be convinced pretty easily to go either way here uh, with the baseball fan base being much more um i don't know restrictive on these steroid players because if you weren't a fan of these players um like if if barry bonds was never on your team if you were never a giants fan and you always hated him i could see that kind of sticking in baseball fans minds and i could also see the fan base being much more progressive about it and and just saying hey barry bonds is the all-time home run leader like we need to get these guys into the hall, like Clemens and bonds have cases as the best hitter and best pitcher of all time. You could make very credible cases for, for both those guys. So I don't know that I feel like I have a strong uh, grasp of what the general feel is, but what I do like about the baseball hall is it seems like whether or not you feel positively or negatively, people care about the baseball hall of fame in a way that I don't know that you get in other leagues Um, And maybe that's just because of the history of baseball uh, or maybe it's just because stats are so important and you can kind of compare players between eras easier than some other sports. Um, Or maybe it's just because I care about baseball. And so I see who cares about the baseball Hall of Fame. And I don't see that as much from other sports. So I do like how, I mean, some people get exhausted by it. I think there are even people on the BA staff who really just kind of have their opinions and don't really get too into it. But I like having the conversations. I like that people feel passionately about it. I like that you can have multiple ballots that are well-reasoned and thought out and you can end up with with drastically different conclusions on all these players. But for me, I think it's very hard for me to believe that the writers have the ability or should have the responsibility to evaluate morality. And I really feel like the Baseball Hall of Fame at the end of the day is a museum. It's a museum of baseball and the sports history. And it's impossible to tell the story of baseball without Barry Bonds and without Roger Clemens. Um, I don't know what the full like sportsmanship clause is on the Hall of Fame ballot specifically. um, But I also don't think that putting someone into the Hall of Fame should be or is some sort of moral high ground like we're not saying these are are great fantastic people or that we condone every act they've ever made because one we don't really know them i mean all of these players no one really knows personally like you can interact with them in a locker room you can interact with them um over the course of your career covering them but you don't really know them in the way that your actual interpersonal relationships you know people so at the end of the day i don't i don't think that it's fair to ask writers to criticize morality and if they're eligible by the Hall of Fame, you pretty much have to just vote on them based on what they did on the field. So that's kind of where I stand with it. I can understand why people think that maybe is uh, not taking in the full picture, but at the end of the day, that's that's the easiest and simplest and most consistent way that I would think to to handle it. And I think that Bonds and Clemens and A-Rod should be shoe-ins. I also think Andrew Jones should be a, a shoe-in into the Hall. We can talk about that if you want, but I've been banging on that one for a while now
1: yeah yeah i'm with you on on andrew i think it's and i, and I do agree their point too that I, I think there's a a generational divide, not a divide. You, you can see a shift I, I would suspect both in certainly in baseball writers i think we can see that in how mm-hmm. younger writers or at least newer voters vote it's more favorably um pro clemens and bonds getting into the hall of fame compared to older writers it's part of why we're seeing their numbers voting numbers creep up even or or did creep up until they got off the ballot at this point uh and probably also a reason why the hall of fame said "Mm, we're gonna go from 15 years to 10 years now and (laughs) all of a sudden they're they're off the ballot now so that so that probably is true also for i think the general public where i think in general younger people will just say yeah put put bonds and clemens in like you said let's let's make the hall of fame about honoring the greatest baseball players of all time and clearly bonds clemens a rod fit that fit that category but yeah i mean i would you know andrew jones scott Rowland, there's so many other guys on this ballot that it's I, i i get the frustration where You know, we have at least what 10 you can argue more deserving candidates on this ballot. And then we have a year where only David Ortiz gets in. It's, yeah, it's, it's got to be frustrating as a fan to, to see that.
0: So we haven't, um, Matt Eddy does annually, he does a a Baseball America Shadow Hall of Fame voting, which is, he started it several years ago, and, and it's basically just kind of a mock Hall of Fame vote with a bunch of BA and former BA writers. Uh, we, we don't have the results of that this year, but we've, we've gotten through a lot of these players who are still on the ballot, like guys like Bonds and Clemens were inducted long ago. Um, and I'm curious to see what the results of that are. We can talk about it in the future when, once Matt releases it and gets all the votes in. But for the actual ballot we have today, do you know the players that you would have checked yes if you had a ballot, if you were voting this year, have you thought through that uh, or no? Uh,
1: not to the full extent that I would if if I had mm-hmm. a ballot. and I don't have the ballot in front of me right now, but, uh, you know, I, again, like, yeah, Bonds, Clemens, Schilling, like Big Poppy, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> I think all the... I think I could get
0: to 10 and I think I generally am more of a... For at least my ballots, if I'm kind of on the fence about someone, I would lean towards voting yes, because you still have to rely on the entire voting population to also vote for that player. So I would think that I would just kind of lean towards big Her- bigger Hall on my vote, and I think I would definitely go yes for Ortiz, for Bonds, for Clemens, for Scott Rowland, for Kurt Schilling. So that's five. I would also vote for Todd Helton. Um, I would vote for Andrew Jones. Uh, six, seven. I would vote for A-Rod, eight. And then my last two would be between uh, Gary Sheffield, Manny Ramirez, and Billy Wagner and Jeff Kent. Those four would probably be where I'd have to try and pull two from. And I think I'd probably just go for Sheffield and Manny Ramirez. And I would feel pretty good about that i've i've looked at these guys cases in previous years as we've kind of done our shadow ba hall i would want to go over it all again in more detail before kind of like locking that in but those 10 i would feel pretty good about
1: having solid hall of fame cases this is why we're personally. not letting you win the bbwa because you can't vote for 13 Yeah, guys carlos no no no
0: I, I cut it down i was 10 ortiz let me here we go ortiz bonds clemens roland Schilling, elton jones sheffield a rod ramirez that's 10 right yeah, I'm good. I'm good. We All can't right. let you in Ben cuz you can't count. <laughs> you would have he, a full, you would have that everyone checked on this list. Do you are you a big haul or a small hall guy in
1: general? I mean, bigger than what we're doing now. <laughs> for, no, I guess it's like, like, don't know. Like I don't know like as Barrett like as Barry Bonds and Clemens like an A-rod like does that count as a big haul? Like You're just <laughs> pro cheating at that in that point I think. That's what it is. I mean, he's got you know, like these guys should all there's like you said there's at least ten guys on this ballot mm. who should be in and that's that but to me that's that's a disappointing part where I I understand why people you know I, I think you make a legitimate you know case why you would not vote in Alex yep. Rodriguez if you're taking this hardline stance on on what he did and what the rules were at the time but you know to me it, it you know it cost him a season and the penalty is not that he should that he's not on the hall of fame ballot anymore so to me again the hall of fame should be about voting in the all-time greatest baseball players and and clearly he belongs so yeah but
0: it's tough too because there are people in the hall that have done all sorts of terrible things and they've used amphetamines and i don't think that's true (laughs) <laughs> I don't, that doesn't sound right yeah it's just it's and and obviously like in the hall of Fame? and all the people that are in the hall like you certainly you can make a case well that the, the writer now who's voting he wouldn't necessarily have voted for the person who's already in there so there, there's just all kinds of gray areas and you like you said you could certainly make a case that yeah because at the time it was against the rules he chose to break the rules uh, you don't want to vote for a rule breaker like i understand that logic even if it's not something that I would apply my own if I was voting. And maybe people are glad that I'm not voting in the hall, Ben. Maybe people are with you and they just want to keep me out. But um, it, it's fascinating to talk through. I mean, yeah, no, no matter this. what, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are not being erased from baseball history. They're always going to loom very large, whether they're in the hall or not. So at the end of the day, maybe this is all just window dressing. But I do think it's it's still pretty important for the game.
1: You don't think baseball reference is going to take their pages off? Yeah, I think now. they're
0: going to actually just blackball. Uh, yeah. I mean, Bonds is already blackballed from the league, so now he's going to be blackballed from B-Ref.
1: <laughs> YouTube is going to censor him. like. Uh...
0: <laughs> well, he wasn't in uh, MVP Baseball 2005, so maybe he's just going to remove his likeness and image from everything. Oh, that's true.
1: Yeah, the, I wonder, too, what do you think? John Dowd wonder... would
0: be a Hall of Fame video, baseball, <laughs> video game baseball player for sure. The Pablo time, Sanchez. Yeah. I think Pablo Sanchez would be the, the first unanimous video game baseball
1: player, though. I don't know what was he like off the field. <sighs> don't know. He's a mystery off the field. What do you what do you think, too, of transparency in Hall of Fame voting? Because I I was, I was just thinking through this mm-hmm. the other day, and I haven't totally thought this through, but I, I think there's a general sentiment from bbwa voters that all sh- ballots should be public and you're, i you're I, saying I, the
0: voters think that
1: yeah, the actual, yeah like
0: the, the bbwa writers think that
1: yeah so why yeah, aren't they don't, all public <laughs> well no i don't i don't a general sentiment not that gotcha. uh, clearly not every writer you think
0: majority rules here and we should force others to make their ballots transparent
1: basically is that what you're saying that's absolutely not what I'm saying. <laughs> That's not <laughs> at all what I'm saying. I'm saying I, I think there's a general push for transparency to make all to make every vote public, because all right, well you know we cover the game if we're going to vote. We, you know, we should have the, I don't want to say courage. It's not really, it takes any courage, but, um, you being very, very brave to take a vote on these baseball players, Ben. Yeah, this is, (laughs) no, you you should stand behind what you do Mm -hmm. and, and make it public. On the other hand, there, there clearly are people who vote and choose not to make their ballots public for whatever reason. And I do, like, there is such thing as preference falsification. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think once it's time for me to vote on the Hall of Fame, I, I, I imagine I will make my ballot public. I'll bully and... into doing it
0: if you don't, so.
1: Yeah, see, exactly. I feel so, okay uh, but... bullying you into
0: it, though, because I know you, but I, I also... No, I I agree with you. I think I, I I would, if I was voting, I would have it, I would make it very transparent. I would try and lay out my rationale, what my thought process was, why I voted for some players, why I didn't vote for others. Um, But I also, it's kind of weird. I don't know that it's weird, but I, I have a little bit of pause when you start to say, okay, everyone has to do this now just because I want to. And I, I think generally people should, but it also feels weird to force people to be transparent because you're right there could be reasons why your vote would change if you did that, there could be reasons why you don't want to do that, even if I personally wouldn't buy into any of them. Um, I I think like you wouldn't in other in other areas where you're voting, although I guess this depends what you're voting on and and when what you're voting for, but you don't generally force people to tell you what people are voting on in any number of things. So I, I can see an argument for why you wouldn't want to do that, while at the same time, like personally, wanting to be transparent about my vote and and being interested in others as well.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I, my point. Is that point too is much? Is that both I just sides. Sure, in well, I just, I just want to make sure people vote for who they the voters vote for who they truly believe belongs in the hall of fame, and are not because their ballot is forced to become public, they're not voting for a player due to you know fear of you know online retribution or yeah. you know they, they would they just want to go with the crowd on 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 where the you know who everybody else is voting for it's close they don't want to be that guy that says oh well i didn't vote for scott Rowland and he got 74 percent of the vote and mm-hmm. people can see that even though you should vote for scott Rowland. Because he belongs in the <laughs> hall of fame but obviously, again, I, I do think more transparency is is a good thing. I'm just yeah. sort of torn on whether just the idea that every ballot should be. Forced to be made public, I'm, I'm, I'm a little go just go just talking it through. I'm a little going back and forth, I guess on. Yeah, no, I, should, I think yeah. I did the same thing.
0: I think we both can see sides of like we personally clearly have views that push us more towards the transparency, but we we both feel a little hesitant to kind of force that on everyone. Um, I hope people do put a lot of thought into it and realize they could be the reason why a player doesn't make it or does make it or, or in previous cases, why a player would be unanimous or would not be unanimous. Um, how many votes did Jeter miss being in unanimously? Like, I'm sure the people who did not vote for him are, are glad that their ballots were not public. So that's a an handful, instance. Maybe yeah, there yeah. were it was definitely it was close enough to where like those those people who didn't vote for them, if everyone is public they would have been harassed online significantly and like yeah i mean on the other
1: hand then then you see people who turn in ballots with like one name on it only mm -hmm. right it's like i don't know like jeff kent or somebody like that (laughs) and they make it public it's like well what if you actually couldn't make that public would they still vote that way i don't know probably Mm -hmm. i'm I'm gonna assume you think some people who
0: you think someone who's just voting for jeff jeff kent is only doing that because it's public
1: is is i i think it gets more attention i don't think it's a that's probably attention true. necessarily but it's that ballot is going to get more attention than somebody who votes for ortiz and bonds and clemens and roland mm-hmm. and shilling and helton and andrew and sheffield and all that yeah so again i, I i'm i'm going to assume their motivations are all right well this is actually who i think is yeah belongs in the hall of fame but if it wasn't i don't know Maybe maybe it would be I really want to,
0: I should have checked to see what the weirdest public hall of fame ballot was. I know what we saw a couple that I kind of just like raised my eyebrows I was like, okay, I would love to know the logic of this ballot, but I don't have any um on hand. Maybe after this, I'll go through a bunch and we can. Yeah.
1: Anytime. Look, anytime you have four or 500 mm-hmm. something odd people voting on something, you're going to get a handful of screwy looking outliers. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, well, no, it, it's
0: interesting. I guess if you guys have any thoughts on the hall, let us know. Um, if you want to send in what your ballots would be, if, if Ben granted you the power to vote, um, let us know on social media, at, at Future Propod at Ben Badler, at Carlos DeClazzo, all those handles on Twitter. You guys know where to find us if you've been listening. Dude, um, they don't even let me vote. Yeah, well, you're, you're getting closer. You're you're a few years away, Ben. Just hang on. Hang on for a few more years. Who is, Who is, let's see, if you're in four years, do you know who first ballot, um players will be
1: have you looked at your, are you
0: prepping for your hall of fame boat four years out
1: beltray will be well hopefully beltray adrian beltray will be in before then <laughs> i, mean, I he, he'll he comes on the ballot before that point so uh if if he's not in on the first ballot that would be really sad i, I can't I imagine mean, he how much get how in. much
0: better do you view his career compared to like scott Rowland?
1: oh do yeah you, Oh, he was better. Quite a bit better. <laughs> yeah. So you think he's yeah. like
0: first ballot? You think he'll go in the first year? I, I think. Sorry if deserves? you can hear me typing. I typically mute, but I'm just kind of pulling up their BRF pages.
1: No, I, I mean, I I think he's like a no brainer Hall of Famer mm-hmm. for me. But I could say <laughs> that about some some other guys. And um, I mean, like he's close to a hundred WAR. I think for his is career. he actually? Wow. Yeah, I, I mean one of the greatest defensive third basemen of all time. I mean, just like one of the greatest defensive infielders or just players of all time. <laughs> yeah, you're
0: right. Wow. He has 93.5 career war on B That's an, I, I knew he had like an insane second half of his career. I think I, I, I don't think I realized just how loud it was. It's it's more than 20 above Scott. Scott Roland finished with 70.1
1: yeah man he yeah, was a monster and he got to the big leagues when he was 19 years old mm-hmm. he had that contract with Seattle and you know I think like he was good there but I think mm-hmm. the ballpark suppresses some of his surface level numbers and yeah, yeah. but yeah then once you know signed with Boston for a year and then the i mean his whole 30s with Texas was ridiculous it's crazy that
0: he didn't make an all-star game until he was 31. Is that right? Yeah, his first All Star game was with Boston in 2010. He made three straight Boston, then two with Texas. skipped 2013, and was back in in 2014. He was runner up in MVP. Yeah, he was year. runner up. He must have had some crazy second half surge. I don't remember off the top of my head. 2004 season, he finished second in MVP, won Silver Slugger, did not make an All Star uh, All Star appearance. In 2004, who would have been the NL? Wow. Who would have been the NL third baseman? In what year? Two thousand four, two thousand four. There are probably listeners who are like shouting the answer right now. And if, if you got yeah. it, congratulations. My memory I mean, of like sixteen years ago, who was I'll look was it up right race race in the National League. Uh, Is do you think Beltre has a case as one of the best, like second half career players of all time? He has to, right? Like who else would be in, like Barry Bonds certainly would be there.
1: Best second half. I mean, he was so good his whole career, but yeah, I mean, his 30s. It seems like he was, about what, at least in terms of recognition, I think even war, it was
0: better. Like if you split his career in half.
1: I mean, he has seven seasons of between four to eight war mm-hmm. in his 30s.
0: Oh, this, you know, I love when things come full circle. 2004 National League, all-star third baseman, Scott Rowland oh there, there you were, go there were three cardinals who started on that one you had albert pulls at first scott roland at third and edgar Renteria at shortstop wow barry bonds was starting in the outfield on the other side we had manny ramirez a rod was the starting third baseman um for the al team nice not a lot of hall of famers there no, not, not, not a lot of Hall of Famers. Sammy Sosa also on the NL team, not a Hall of Famer. Although his is an interesting one, and I don't know how long you wanted to talk about the Hall, but I feel like Sammy Sosa's case is one of those where you could easily make a very compelling argument for him to be a Hall of Famer that I would buy into, and then you could just as easily make a case that he doesn't deserve to be there. And I'm inclined to like keep him out because it's kind of shocking how low his OBP and average were despite his home run output and just given kind of the, the length and longevity of his career. So I would lean no. Um, but do you have any, any takes on Sosa?
1: He probably like when you're talking about how you have to cut it off at 10 players, mm-hmm. he probably would not be in that. If you could vote for me. as many
0: as you wanted, would you vote if for him? I,
1: If I could, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on it. Yeah, he's yeah. Like if he got in, I wouldn't say, "Oh wow, I can't believe they they let him in the Hall of Fame." <laughs> <laughs> like, um, Who's the and, first and, player on this list that you would say that about? And on oh
0: of on the, the guys, current ballot this year's.
1: Uh, I saw some like support for Tim Lincecum, where I was like, "Yeah, that's crazy." He's, He's great man. I love Tim Lincecum since he was in college
0: and I I think I would go Jimmy Rollins. Just going down the vote of percentage like I've I've got a list of the results. Jimmy Rollins is probably the highest vote getter who if he got in I'd be like what? Like yeah, he's very good. He's more Hall of very good to me than Hall of Fame. But yeah. I agree with him, o- Lincecum.
1: Omar Vizquel's support declines mm-hmm. which was not for any baseball reasons but that that one made sense that one I I think Kurt Kurt
0: Schilling also went down which makes sense after he told people that he doesn't care about it and doesn't want to be voted for
1: And in addition to the number of things he's done I wonder if the veterans committee just pushes him along or what Schilling I I, I think so yeah I would
0: imagine so and like if a guy even like putting aside off the field stuff with Vizquel like Prior to the knowledge of that stuff going on, like I could see someone making a case if you believed he was one of the best defensive shortstops ever. Even if I think that he doesn't belong in the hall, like you could make a case for me that I think would make some sense, kind of in the same way that I think of Andrew as being one of the best defensive centerfielders of, of all time. Even if maybe the offensive bar isn't quite as high as some of the other outfielders that you're going to compare him to. Like I think that he was so unique on the defensive side that it makes sense, but
1: yeah, but Andrew brings so or brought so much more mm-hmm. offensively. Yeah, you don't have to make the Kale case.
0: The, the Andrew case for me, I'm with you.
1: Yeah, I don't understand why. Why are you so against Andrew Jones being in the Hall of Fame? Oh, God, we're starting a new narrative here, aren't we? I think people this who is follow why, this is why we're not know. letting you in the BBWAA. <laughs> I don't want to
0: join your club. You know, I'm on the outside looking in and, and criticize you and all your colleagues.
1: That's what I'm going to do but, but bat batches was always I mean he obviously is a very good player mm-hmm. but to me if I just don't see him being in in the Hall of Fame just if if we're inducting the best the greatest baseball players of all time to me it just doesn't
0: Where do you where do you fall it, on relievers then?
1: Cuz I feel like
0: talking about someone who is elite at a, as a defender never really brought much to the table offensively. Relievers you can kind of have a similar conversation where I, I like to to just think about relievers all the time as like failed starters. Now that's for, for all players, that's not the case for a vast majority. Major league relievers were starters at one point and all of them were trying to start at the major league level. How do you view relievers in the hall of fame? What do you think the bar needs to be guys like Billy Wagner? You think he is good enough? Like Mario and Rivera was obviously unanimous and everyone seemed to think of him as a hall of famer. What, what do you feel like is the bar as a reliever? Yeah, I think the bar
1: has to be elite, elite, elite reliever to get in. Um, It, (laughs) yeah, you you have to be not you don't have to be Mariano Rivera. Like I don't think he should be the only (laughs) reliever in the Hall of Fame, but it's it's tough when you're only pitching maybe an inning or or two at a time. I, I actually think we we're gonna have to adjust. How we view starting pitchers? Absolutely, do historically. I was in, I was having the conversation the with
0: Matt about this exactly because he's I think one of his stronger opinions on this year's class is he views Pettit as a Hall of Famer, um, and I don't really think so. But it 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 also is tough evaluating pitchers now, and as we move through the years, it's going to become increasingly more difficult to square the pitchers that are on the ballot with the people who are in the Hall because. Pitchers just are asked to do such different jobs today. The role is so much different than it used to be. Pitchers are not going out and starting as many games or throwing as deep into games. It's much more of a, a power game where you kind of go out and you fire all your bullets as hard as you can. And you come out earlier and relievers are, are more important. So I'm curious how how the benchmarks and the milestones for pitchers are going to be evaluated for the Hall and how that affects relievers as well. Because as, as starting pitchers, pitch fewer innings um, and are asked to do less in the playoffs. That's only going to up the importance of relievers. So in 10 years, is it going to be much more common for relievers to get into the hall? I don't know, but it's, it's going to be interesting. And I don't know if there's like an easy, obvious way to think it through because I mean, you, you tend to just kind of compare players on the ballot now to um, their hall of fame position group um, peers And that's
1: impossible to do for pitchers so it is very difficult yeah we're just not going to have pitchers throwing 300 innings anymore and just accumulate or or even just staying healthy enough in most cases to accumulate consistent you know 200 plus inning seasons new pitchers just don't have that want to that the old pitchers
0: did there is a lot grittier back in the day
1: yeah i mean that that could be it uh (laughs) mean, i mean i think of like felix hernandez to me I, I he's got be he's got to be in yeah. the Hall of Fame, but like it, I don't know if, if you just look at his career numbers like there's some borderline case there I, I think but to me I, I just think we have to adjust the the volume for the volume of innings that pitchers are throwing or or have been throwing over over the last 10 or so years compared to what we saw guys thrown in, you know, the sixties and seventies and, and things like that is, it's just not the same game. I think we have to account for that. And to me, like a guy like Felix Hernandez is, is you know, all right. So he, you know, was great throughout his, tw- oh, he got to the big leagues at 19 all throughout his, his twenties. And then, you know, by the time he was what, 30, 31. And it started to fall apart, but I don't know. I, 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 I think he's, I think he's a Hall of Famer. But if if we just look at his, like just looking ahead, I'm not sure if if he gets in. But I, I think he's he's got to be in.
0: Man, that would be tough. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't I don't know that I've thought about his his actual case and his odds to get in. Do you know when he's on the ballot? Will you be voting for him at that point?
1: I guess yeah. At some point, um, he he probably will be for. When i'm voting again i don't even know exactly when <laughs> i'm i'm voting the uh i'll get it to the other if you're gonna be yeah, voting,
0: you need to really prep for this
1: years years out to, to be ready the the other interesting guy too i may have brought this up before but madison bumgarner mm-hmm. man like i think like when he when he gets on the ballot we we, we used to have these conversations about jack morris Mm -hmm. Right, about how awesome he was in the playoffs, and you had to be there in game seven and all this, and you just had to watch (laughs) him pitch, and you can't you can't just look at the the numbers, you had to see him to know he's a hall of famer. And I think generally people uh or or a lot of folks would say, including myself, well, all right, well, his the numbers (laughs) clearly are not there for Mm -hmm. him to to justify a spot in the hall of fame. Yeah, And I think I'm probably going to find when Madison Bumgarner is there, I'm going to be like, man, this guy feels like a Hall of Famer to me. <laughs> even even though – I mean, look, like he obviously had a tremendous career and is an all-time great postseason pitcher, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if, yeah. if the totality of, of what he's done. It's weird because I, I feel like for me, Felix, Felix just feels
0: much more like a Hall of Famer to me personally than Madison, but it's also because I know – I value peak a little bit more. I discount playoff performances a little bit more than maybe other people do. Like, this is also part of the reason why I mean, Matt disagree on Andy Pettit, his Hall of Fame case, because a lot of a lot of it is built on how long and how effective he was for the Yankees in the playoffs. But I don't know how to value playoff appearances and playoff performance in general, because like Mike Trout, he's going to have no playoff. History at all. Like he's clearly a Hall of Famer. No one's gonna argue that he's not because he doesn't have the postseason reps, because we all acknowledge that it's not Mike Trout's fault that he didn't get to the playoffs. So so valuing how much to benefit, how much to discount, and maybe it's it's just as simple as being like extra. It's like an extra piece of evidence for your case if you have really impressive postseason performance. But so much it like if Andy Pettit was on a different team. He, he doesn't have all that we don't view him the same way like his wins are are the way they are because he was playing on a dominant team for his entire career so that's yeah, kind he, of how I view that and like Madison is like he was fantastic a, a lot of his is going to be more like narrative driven than looking at the totality of his value as a pitcher I would think
1: right oh yeah I mean I, I think a lot of it is the same people who including myself probably who are saying you can't Vote Jack Morrison <laughs> just based on that are going to say no 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 wait 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 but but Madison Bumgarner yeah and to... <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you had to you had to be there I mean it was so it was so ridiculous how good he was mm-hmm. and he just carried them man he was so good yeah I'm trying to
0: pull up his postseason numbers right now just his his career postseason performance but I, I think you same. do
1: I mean you got you have to give a guy credit for what he did. In the postseason. I mean, certainly he benefited. Yeah, it it
0: matters. I just think I struggle to like how much weight to place on it. How much do you value it uh, kind of in relation to the regular season performance? We just have so many more innings and at bats and just playing time. What would you guess Bumgarner's postseason ERA is? He has 102.1 career innings. um, I would say one, two, three,
1: four years. I would say zero point no, four two. one. <laughs> no,
0: it's two point one one, which is still insane. That is ridiculous. Yeah. But um, yeah. Any other hall thoughts before we move on? We've we've been you on, think on it for Mick quite Poppy's a while. you think copies a hall of fun. famer based
1: on your playoff? Yeah. Discussion BK, I'm, there. I, I'm just
0: anyone who's a, a great playoff performer. I don't think is a hall of famer. That's what we've got to here. You just, it's not enough for me. No, I think well, so. I mean, okay. All right. I, think well, I, mean, I think some of
1: is, big poppy's case is just yeah. in part based on how good he was in the playoffs. It wouldn't be for me, like,
0: like th- just the narrative of it wouldn't really factor into it for me. I think the production offensively is just enough, but I think what's interesting with big poppy more than the playoff stuff is like, how do you value a DH and how much more impressive offensively do you need to be to be a hall of famer as a designated hitter when you're just not asked to do half of the job? Or, I mean, and, and I also like him immediately kind of walking that back because I mean, your job is to hit, <laughs> like we've talked about this before. Hitting is the most important creating runs is hard. And I, I think big poppy more than cleared the offensive bar to do that. But I could see, again, talking out of both sides of my mouth, I could see people making a case that, you know, DH, we need to put a very high offensive bar. And if you wanted to argue that big poppy didn't clear it, I, I probably
1: wouldn't agree with you, but I would at least be
0: like, okay, well, that makes sense to me.
1: This is all going on your permanent record for why you're, you're not getting in the BBWA <laughs> Carlos. <laughs> what, what's the one line criticism? Too open-minded can't be on. Yeah, that's that's what it's gonna say. Gotcha. Okay, cool.
0: (laughs) Well, moving on from Hall Talk. And again, share us all of your Hall of Fame takes if you have them. Uh, I'm just curious to to see what you guys think. What would your ballots be? Uh, What do you think the voting process should be? Are you excited or um, a little nervous about Ben potentially voting in the future? Send them all to us. Um, But I wanted to talk a little bit about this college pitching class in the 2022 draft because things are not looking very good, Ben. Um, It has been tough Uh, prior to a few injuries that we've had for two of the better college pitchers in this class, scouting directors and scouts were viewing the college pitching group as a below average class. And in between now and our last podcast, our top two college arms in the group have both um, come out with, or it's been announced that they have injuries, Peyton Palette, the Arkansas right-hander, is out for the year, had Tommy John surgery on his elbow. He had some durability issues last spring as well. So that was a question for him. He's not the biggest guy um, listed at six foot one, 180 pounds. And then, actually, just before we were recording the podcast today, as we record on Friday, um, I saw, or you actually told me, Ben, I, I didn't realize this was um, a thing until you told me, but Blade Tidwell, who is a right hander at Tennessee is out indefinitely with a shoulder injury um, that comes from mike wilson of the knoxville news sentinel uh, i'll link to these stories we had a story kind of breaking down the pellet injury news and what that means for him what that means for his draft stock the tidwell stuff we haven't written about as of this recording to the podcast um but it's a massive bummer i mean this this happens every year now a couple of very prominent pitchers you find out they're injured whether it happens before the season or a few weeks into the season season uh, Jaden Hill at Louisiana State was the first last year, and then Gunnar Hoagland um, at Ole Miss was another one who, who got injured shortly into the season, JT Ginn, um, a few years ago, Mississippi State is another um, just among notable names who who get hurt and kind of go down in their draft year. But this year, I feel like it's almost more impactful for the class because... I mean, these two specifically, Pallet and Tidwell, were the top ranked college arms on our board. They were the only two pitchers who were ranked higher than 19. Um, they were both in that kind of 10 to 20 range on our board. They're gonna be lower than that. Pallet, we've already moved down to kind of the back of the first round range. Um, I think the elbow injury is a little bit less concerning than shoulder issues, just given the track record of recovery. But there are a lot of questions with this college pitching class and, as these guys get hurt, uh, they're only throwing more questions at us.
1: Yeah, and Reggie Crawford too. UConn lefty who's been up to ninety-nine elbow, done for the year, it sounds like. So um with uh with Tommy John or or with his injury. So um yeah, these <laughs> not a I mean what? Is, is kumar rocker i mean do we even call him a college pitcher at this point like he might be the, technically not healthy yeah I yeah mean, the healthiest one at the <laughs> he must be like dude I, i'm not hurt like, it's like <laughs> I, I i went out there and, and pitched all the time mm-hmm. last year so um well,
0: yeah this exactly it, it, like if you go down our list of the top pitchers it's blade tidwell hurt landon sims hasn't started carson wisenhunt pretty good track record of starting not hurt Connor Prelip, hurt, not going to pitch. Kumar Rocker, medical issues with the Mets. Hunter Barco, healthy, fingers crossed. Hopefully he stays healthy. Peyton Palette, injured, not going to pitch this year. Reggie Crawford, injured, not going to pitch this year. Those are all of our pitchers that we currently have ranked in the top 50. So we've got three healthy pitchers, one of whom has not, like, has not developed any sort of track record as a starter in college. So I just know... When we talk about this four or five months from now, hopefully the dynamic has changed. Hopefully there have been some pitchers who, um, whether we were just light on them or came out and took a step forward, are going to move up into that range. But teams really value college starters in the first round, and there just are not a lot to pick from right now that are healthy. I've talked to enough people to still think guys like Connor Prelip and Peyton who these kind of guys who are injured, have really impressive stuff have some track record of starting at the college level um, in power conferences will still go in the first. Like there is there is enough precedent to feel comfortable about them going in the first or going shortly after and getting paid as if they're in the first round. But there are, there are a lot of holes here, and there's a lot of ground that needs to be made up for the class as a whole if we're ever going to get to an average draft class. And it also makes me think about the 2019 college pitching class and kind of how we viewed that group. Going into the draft, it was panned as one of the worst college pitching classes that we've ever had all time in the history of the draft. And if you look at that group now, it looks a whole lot better than it did at the time, I think. So while we're kind of panning the class and it's all doom and gloom here, you never really know how a class is going to look until you get five years down the road. But guys like Nick Ladolo, Alec Manoa, George Kirby, those were three of the first four pitchers to come off the board. I think. The industry would feel pretty good about that group at this point, right?
1: Oh, yeah, no doubt. It's, I mean, it, it, I'm sure we will see throughout the course of this college season somebody, some college pitcher or pitchers will step up and, and put themselves in that top 10 overall mix for just being a top 10 overall pick. But I mean, right now, I mean, if, if the draft is today, I got to think. Dylan Lesko, that's just a high school right-handed pitcher Yeah, out of Georgia is, is probably the, the first pitcher One hundred percent going off the board.
0: He would definitely be. I mean, he, he's clearly the best pitcher in the class right now, and these injuries to the guys who are, who are closer behind him, moving them further away only makes that more clear in my mind. Like, I think Landon Sims is a guy who has the stuff and the strike-throwing ability to move into that range, and it wouldn't shock me at all if we looked up five months from now and Sims was like a top 10 sort of talent in the class. But right now we don't even have uh, a pitcher in the top 15. Once we count for blade Tidwell's injury. And that just feels very rare. um, As we sit here in late January to not have a college pitcher anywhere in the top 15. Like we were talking about Nicola Dolo being the only college pitcher ranked in the top 10 a few years ago. And people were talking about how terrible that college pitching class was. So, I'm really curious. I think there is some depth here. And, and I think before we maybe wrap this conversation up, it is important to note there are a number of really interesting arms who are on our top 100, who have a chance to pop a guy like Adam Meyer at Oregon this year, who was really impressive in the Cape has a chance to shoot up boards. I really like Jonathan Cannon at Georgia. There are a number of left-handed pitchers the, the Florida state duo and Parker Messick and Bryce Hubbard, those could be guys who move up the board um so there are some arms here it's not like and and part of the criticism with the 2019 class was the depth and the top end college pitching was down like across the board it just seemed down Um, so maybe this conversation changes but man like heading into a year i think this is the on paper the least exciting college pitching draft class that that i've been a part of at ba and it it sucks because a lot of this is just because of injuries and like a guy like connor prelip if he was healthy I mean he he would have a case to be the top player in the class overall and we just we don't have that this year so it's tough
1: you think some of these guys still end up going in the first round I mean like we saw with, with Gunnar Hoagland mm-hmm. obviously with, with Toronto yeah I
0: think so I think even if we were talking about a an average college pitching class a guy like Connor Prilla probably still has the the talent and the stuff and and he's a guy who I should also mention is, is throwing bullpens and even if he doesn't pitch this spring scouts are probably going to see him throwing to feel good about his arm Um, but if you look at just the scarcity of college pitchers I think the fact that there aren't any around them to just immediately take their spot will push kind of artificially push them up the board like if you're a team who for whatever reason you just want a college pitcher these are still the best guys to take Um, so I, I think we'll still see several of them go Several who, who we've talked about, and there are probably going to be a couple who we haven't mentioned that are at least going to be in consideration up here. But I mean, guys like Rocker, Enigma to me, Crawford, basically no track record of pitching in college. He's an Enigma to me. But a guy like Connor Prelep and Peyton Palette, I mean, they have they have strong track records. It's limited, but, but part of the reason why it's limited is also because of the COVID season. So it's just a lot of stuff that is really out of their hands in terms of injury, in terms of not being able to develop as much track record as you would have gotten with previous classes uh, like Nick Ladola, He just had, he just had more time to establish a, a foundation of innings that a lot of these guys don't have because of injuries and because of COVID. And it really sucks.
1: How, how is the high school pitching this year? I mean, we talked about Dylan Lesko. How he seems like he separated himself at that, just as the best pitcher in the draft, whether it's, high school or college and this probably even separates him further with some of these injuries but i don't know how how is the high school pitching overall i mean does this give an opportunity for you know Mm -hmm. guys like a a walter ford or andrew decanage jr ritchie Mm -hmm. if they if they go out and 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 look really good and and their stuff ticks up uh maybe a notch Mm -hmm. this spring does does that maybe move them up a little bit higher just because there are so many college pitchers dealing with with injuries right now
0: yeah i think it certainly could and i also think just the track record of recent high school pitchers like a grayson rodriguez who we view as as the best pitcher pitching prospect in baseball the fact that he came out of the high school right-handed pitching demographic should make people feel good i think just Outside of the college pitching conversation, this high school group looks at least average and is probably better than that. I've had people say it's a plus group um, for, the, for this specific demographic as we enter the year. You've got a lot of people up top. You've got a Lesko, who's a clear-cut top 10 talent, the best pitching prospect in the class. Uh, but behind him, you've got a bulk of really impressive um, prep left-handers who you could line up in all sorts of orders. Jackson Ferris um, at IMG Academy, another Florida pitcher, and Brandon Barrera uh, or barrier. I need to really confirm like how he pronounces it. Um, but either way, he's really talented. Tristan Smith, um, out of Spartanburg, South Carolina, Noah Schultz, who we've talked about before, who you really like, um, all of those guys seem like first round talents right now. Um, and depending on how they come out this spring, I think they could still be there. And, and the guys you mentioned, I think are the right ones The J.R. Ritchie is kind of on the cusp of that. I'm sure depending on the team, you could, you could see some scouts who like him in the first round. Now, others have him right behind that. Walter Ford is a guy who I wrote about as a a potential uh, or a riser on our list. And I think he's a potential sleeper entering the year in terms of just moving his stock up significantly from where it is now. And then even beyond those guys, you've got Nazir Moulet, who has maybe some of the best raw arm talent in the class, is exceptionally young. Um, Guys like Jackson Cox, Jacob Miller. like Throughout our 100, you could find pitchers who do things really well Um, And maybe it's it's you haven't seen them in extended outings, you haven't seen enough of a third pitch, you've got questions of consistency from outing to outing over the summer uh, that they can answer this spring. Um, A a guy I really like who's not on our 100 but just missed is Austin Henry out of South Dakota. He's got a curveball that honestly reminded me a little bit of Carter Stewart's when he was in high school big bending breaking ball super high spin like 3000 RPM plus. So I really like this high school pitching class quite a bit. Um, I like when teams are aggressive with high school right-handers, specifically in the first round. I just think, I mean, I've said it a few times um, just internally at BA as we're talking about these pitchers. And I mean, on our board, we talked about it as well last year, but Jackson Job was like tool for tool, pitch for pitch. Stuff-wise, the most talented pitcher in the class last year. And I really like how we we finally had a high school right-hander be taken among the first picks uh we had a few years where that just wasn't the case um and I think the the presence of Lesko and how the college pitching class is shaping up maybe we have a chance to see uh a few more of those high school right-handers specifically and obviously that bulk of left-handed pitchers go in the first round
1: yeah I mean if if some of the risk of high school pitchers is is just durability and the unknown but then you have these your option is that or a college pitcher who (laughs) You where you already know there's either an you know a significant injury or possibly uh an operation on them. I, I do wonder how much that moves some of these high school arms potentially up the board with the with a strong spring from some of them. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um I wanted to talk nhsi with you as well ben because a few of the players that we've talked about are going to be at that event dylan lesko will be the highest ranked prospect at the nhsi this year um but after missing two years because of covid we do have the national high school invitational back this year it's going to be in Cary, probably the best high school tournament uh in the country it's always a fantastic event for for players for competitive games and it's really nice to have that in our backyard at ba Well. I mean, me and you are both um, outside of the state at this point. It has always been an event that we can kind of leave the office and head 10 minutes down the road and see some of the best players in the country. So I'm thrilled that it's going to happen again this year. Um, we'll get it in early April. And I just want to kind of go through a few of the teams who are there and also ask you about your NHSI experience, because that's it's kind of a focal point for me. Um, I actually don't know if you were in the
1: office when the NHSI even
0: started. You were probably already up in Boston,
1: right? Uh, trying to think back, was it NHSI or of Stars? When, what year did the NHSI start? I don't know if you.
0: I believe it was in 2013 or 14. I'll check. Yeah, so I probably country. was already
1: up here in Boston mm-hmm. by that point.
0: Have you? So you've have you ever been to the NHSI or just Tos for you, which is now PDP League?
1: Yeah, just other, just other USA mm-hmm. events. I don't think I've been live to that one before because we just have, I mean, our office is in Durham, North Carolina, so we have like <laughs> 10 other people who are- can Yeah, just we need to get over. everyone out there. Come on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, 2012 was the first year, modern day, one back-to-back years. And then the last three years of the event, 2017, 2018, 2019, Orange Lutheran, uh, three-peated, and- Basically, that kind of aligns with when I started working at BA and covering the draft. So the entire time I've been here, Orange Lutheran has just dominated this event. Um, and it really sucked because you had a couple players on that Olu team. I think Max Rajich, who is now a UCLA right-handed pitcher and is now draft eligible in this class. Uh, he had a chance to say that he won the NHSI every year of his high school career, which is pretty awesome uh, to say that at about, about an event as prestigious as this. Um, this year they're back. They've got a chance to go for the four Pete, although, um, obviously didn't happen in 2020 or 2021, but they've got a loaded team. Mikey Romero is a shortstop, uh, who will be kind of the focal point prospect wise for them. One of my favorite bats in the class, um, Buford high, which is Dylan Lesko's team is another loaded one. You've got Riley Stanford, who's a Georgia tech committed in 2022, um, prospect big arm from the right side two-way player with power. Uh, Kaden Martin is a guy who transferred into Buford, uh, Miami commit left in a bat with power. And then another team that I'm just really excited about kind of on paper is Hamilton. Um, this is their third appearance in the NHSI. You've got Gavin Turley there, who is a, an absolute tool shed of an outfielder. Uh, in addition to a number of underclass players on their team, they're bringing back a lot of pitchers, um, from their team a year ago. I think they bring back like 15 of their 20 pitching wins. Uh, But I'm really excited to see a guy like Turley who showed such an intriguing blend of like power, uh, arm strength, speed, um, but really didn't get a ton of reps from him last summer. So seeing a bat in this environment is always fun because you're going to be going up against probably, I guess, depending on your pool, but probably better pitching than you would see over the course of a season. Um, And it was only 2018, I believe, where Jordan Adams used this event to really catapult his draft stock. Um, and move himself into the first round so excited to see all these players excited to see who's able to maybe jump on draft radars at a much higher
1: level um, and basically just get this tournament back yeah the 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 nice thing too is you get to see you get to see pitchers in a different environment than, than you normally would over the summer mm-hmm. where a lot of times like in the summer you're seeing a guy throw Maybe an inning or two at a showcase, or if he's pitching in a game, he might throw like you know two or three innings, something like that. Mm-hmm. But you're not really seeing him work through a lineup multiple times. Um, you you might see him against good competition in, in a showcase, yeah. But then in in the spring, hitters the are pitching. such a
0: disadvantage in that in that situation. It's just so different,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah, but and then and then just for scouting the the pitchers too, you're seeing during the during the spring season you're seeing a guy is probably going to throw, you know, 5 to 7 innings for his high school team throwing once a week but all right well we're going to see, you know, Caden Dana up in New Jersey who's on our top 100 draft rankings right now. All right, well we can see him, you know, pitching against kids in New Jersey, you know, you know, it's useful, but it's better if we're going to see him go against <laughs> you know, a lineup that has, you know, a guy like, you know, Gavin Turley and these underclassmen like Rock Chalowski and Zach Wattis, who are, you know, top 50 guys in, in our 2023 rankings. So, you know, just just to have that, just, just, just to see a pitcher face, not only good competition, but also probably be able to, you know, evaluate him and, and how he holds his stuff and, and really pitches against guys and how he operates over, over the course of, of a full outing instead of a you know brief kind of a showcase glimpse like that i think is is useful too yeah absolutely and i'm glad
0: you mentioned some of the underclassmen classmen too because these are also events where i mean typically for me it is it is tougher to bear down in person on a lot of the upper class events just because the the current year draft class there's always so much to go to and so much to see that a lot of the times it's just like video and in reporting is how i get the information for those players but I mean, on Bishop Verro's team, who's going to be at the NHSI, their second time, I think they actually have a pretty good record at this NHSI, um, but Carter Smith is apparently like one of the best freshmen in the country. I'm really excited to just see him kind of on the same tournament uh, field with all these other players, just to see, just to get first glimpses, glimpses of these players who are going to be dudes in the coming years. Not that I'm excited to like rank 2025 class prospects by any means, but just putting eyes on these guys who who we're going to see coming up through the ranks, um, is going to be a lot of fun. I mean, you're probably more familiar with a lot of the 2023 high school players than I am at this point. Are there any other guys outside of like a rock Chalowski, uh, that you're really excited for?
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's the good thing too, about an event like this is because just like you said, I mean, the spring, I mean, if you know, for, for scouts, whether you're scouting director area Sky, like you, your full attention is on mm-hmm. this current year's class and then when the season is over or after the draft you can kind of flip the calendar mm-hmm. to start following 2023s but all right here like you, you you can see a whole bunch of really good underclassmen all mm-hmm. all at the same place so yeah it's it's super helpful to see that um you know ralphie velasquez uh, 2023 uh, you know, catcher slash first baseman is going to be there. Christian Rodriguez, uh, right-handed pitcher, also play some outfield. I uh, really like his his future on the mound in, in particular. Um, he's going to be there. Um, Derek Curiel, 2024. Uh, yeah, he's really... supposed to be one of the
0: top players in the 24 class, right?
1: Yeah. He just committed yeah. to LSU recently. Yeah, he did. He did. He's uh, He's got a beautiful swing. Everything just comes so so free and easy to him. I mean, you'll see him on the same field, obviously, with you know Mikey Romero. If if you like Mikey Romero's swing, and I know you do, you oh, let's go. Like yeah. you're gonna like Derek Curry. already all in on Curry. So. Let's go. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's just a good opportunity to because you you can't really it's it's or it's more challenging to see the underclassmen during the spring season. It's, it's just a good opportunity to get out and and mm-hmm. see a whole bunch of them at at once and. You know those guys probably can change more than the you know that more than the 2022s right just because they're they're younger they may have grown more gotten stronger i mean obviously mm-hmm. the 2022s can and and will develop too but there's just more more room for growth obviously if you're you know going from you know 16 to 17 rather than from you know 17 to 18 or, or 18 to 19. Yeah, it'll be fun
0: to see all these players can't wait to get out there in april if you're around the area come come see the games it's open to the public um it'll be pretty easy to get in and get a great seat um but you'll see a lot of really really talented players i mean every year this field of players develops first round draft prospects and that'll be the case this year as well um ben we've we've touched on a lot of topics i wanted to circle back to top 100 we talked about this briefly or maybe not briefly last week but we talked about it last week after a top 100 drop Um, we've had a lot of really compelling kind of supplemental content on the site over the last few days and got me thinking about um, just some players on the list as well I think me myself Kyle and Jeff on the BA pod talked about some players that we came away liking more after going through the process but I'm curious if there were any players who you came away either liking more or after the fact, you're like, man, like on my personal list, I had this guy quite a bit lower than I would now after kind of discussing it with the group or getting feedback or, or just digging into these players a little more. Are there any players who jumped out to you in that sense?
1: I think Taj Bradley with the Rays is probably one of the higher ratios of talent to fame, like I, I don't know, I don't like think a lot of, don't a lot of like attention or, or super famous, but he he, he should be man. <laughs> this guy's pretty, he's pretty good. Um, you know, f- fifth rounds, way over slot guy coming out of high school in 2018. He's one one of the youngest guys in that class. Drafted at Um, you know, 17 years old. So, um, two years in rookie ball. Obviously, there was no 2020 season. And then this year he gets to low A, gets bumped up to high A, throws a ton of strikes, and it's pretty electric stuff coming out of his hand. It's it's up to you know the the velocity has started to creep up. He's touching 96, he's touching 97 now. Um he's and he's throwing a lot of strikes with it. He's you know flashing a, a plus slider. There's uh you know change up kind of comes and and goes but you'll you can see the makings of a, a pretty solid change up in there at times so um you know I, I think he has the makings of somebody who could be a mid-rotation starter and and somebody who you know i i don't think he was he was you know he was in the raised top 30 for a couple of years but maybe gets a little bit buried there just <laughs> because of the just how many good prospects and, and good arms they've had come through um but the just the more hear, hearing about him and just looking a little bit deeper i probably realized you know what i'm been been a little too light on on mm-hmm. this guy
0: yeah the uh the the fact that you have to compete with all the other raised prospects i think is certainly a factor in his perception and, and fame compared to maybe uh another player who who i think about and in- in this group of players that we're going to talk about, but your next guy, I also, um, felt the same about, and that's Jeremy Pena. What about, what about Pena? Did you come away really liking for me? It was just that knowing or or realizing the amount of strength that he's added. And for whatever reason, his offensive performance kind of went under the radar for me. And just knowing his foundational defensive ability at shortstop paired with this new offensive upside, um, he is one of the players that we ran up our top 100 late in the process, and I'm very glad we did that. Uh, I think definitely going in, I would have been quite a bit light on him, um, which is why it's great to work with a, a team that we have here at BA.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, he he was out for most of the year because he got hurt mm-hmm. his wrist back in April. So I guess he got to the gym after that. He's yeah, <laughs> no. He, he's a strong dude, man. It's no question about that. He, I mean, coming out of college, the the book on him was really talented, defensive shortstop. Not sure if there's enough impact there offensively to be an everyday guy at shortstop. But, man, when he, he came back, it was, it was really good. I mean, 2019, too, is his first year out of the draft, or his first full season, I should say, out of the draft, coming out of Maine was was pretty good it just seems like it keeps keeps getting better it just keeps going in the right direction for him and then you know like when, when we were putting together our top 100 you know you kind of get to the back of the list and and you see who some of the shortstops are in that range and you know like I like you know Ronnie Mauricio's a good player Geraldo Perdomo's a good player um Royce Lewis, I don't know, (laughs) like a lot of of to be determined on him, and um, you know we over like all right, like these are solid players, but I don't know, just just seeing the overall skill set that Jeremy Pena has, I don't think there's any question on his defense, and then seeing the leap forward that he's taken offensively, I, I think he's always had a pretty good sense of of the zone and being able to put the bat to the ball, maybe some of that took a a step back or or just traded off some of that for Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more power, or maybe some of that was just, you know, the time he missed coming back and and getting his rhythm and timing back. But, um, there's a pretty good balance of, of defense and offense here for him to step in and and be, be an everyday shortstop at at the big league level. Yeah. He's an exciting one.
0: Uh, I'm glad you brought, brought him up or, uh, glad we, glad we moved him up on our list. Um, if you don't have any others, Ben, let's get into some listener questions, but I'll uh, give you a chance to throw out any more if you have them.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, those were, those are two of the the main guys for, mm-hmm. for me. I mean, and hopefully there's not too many guys on the top 100 where I'm too surprised by <laughs> the fact that they're, <laughs> they're on here. I mean, yeah, so- no,
0: I think it's uh, there. there is something to just gaining more of appreciation for a player as we go through the process that I think is, is a very real outcome of, of just creating the list and, and having it be as
1: collaborative an effort as it, as it is. So it happens too, when you, just when you write about a player, like some, sometimes we like, you'll make a list right beforehand. Yep. Say, all right, you know, whether it's a top 100 for, for, you know, top 100 for minor league prospects or draft rankings, international players, you're running up a top 30 for, you know, for the Atlanta Braves, let's say. Mm -hmm. Like you have the list and then you start writing out the reports and as you write it out, then you're like, wait a second, this guy is not that good. Like he needs to go down or you're right up, you'll write up a guy and it, it'll go the other way. You're like, man, yeah. like, this guy should be higher up the list because just writing, you you think you have you you have your thoughts in your minds, but then when you write them down, put it on paper. Or, there is a critical thinking
0: that <laughs> happens when you write, or at least for me, everything you're saying like really rings home for me. And I feel like it's it's part of the reason that I enjoy doing this podcast because so much of my time spent thinking about baseball is writing about the players, um, and, and I do find that I just think through players better when when you write about them. Maybe that's, I mean, how it's always been. It seems obvious to to kind of say this now, but it's a lot different talking about players on a podcast than writing about players. Something about whether it's the creative process or just the amount of time that you spend kind of pouring over everything, collecting all of your information and presenting it, something about that process just kind of helps things click in your mind um, is very beneficial. I think it's like if, if we basically didn't write anything and just did podcasts about baseball, I I wonder how we would think about players because it's, it's, it's very different, I would say, if
1: that, if that made any sense at all. I think, I think the conversations that we have are are certainly helpful and instructive mm-hmm. and it, it helps you think, but just writing, ha- having an idea in your head is different than writing it down on paper yes. or, or writing it on your computer. It, ri- writing forces you to organize your thoughts.
0: Yeah, that editing and process you, that when you look at it, see
1: it correct,
0: change, that that just kind of hammers everything home and kind of solidifies it for you.
1: Yeah. So, you know, especially you're writing up two players at the same position and you're like, well, I just wrote up this shortstop and then this other shortstop. But in my head, I had them in a different order. But when I actually write it out, I I just realized this, these guys need to move from, from from where they are. It's weird too, for me, when this kind
0: of hits home the most is like, you'll have conversations with, with scouts and with coaches when you're trying to build out say a new draft list. And for me, this is always the most true for the college players. Um, But a lot of those guys over the summer, I won't have seen as much because I've been following the high school players around. I'll have all these conversations and I've had um, really good chats with people about the players. So like I have all this information that I've processed just like over the phone and I've kind of looked over like notes from these conversations. But really, I don't feel like I have a great grasp of them until I kind of put all that together and write our kind of initial reports. And after that process, if you ask me how confident I felt about my knowledge just before writing, even though I have all the information that I need, versus after writing, something changes there. Um, just to give you more, I don't know, just more awareness about about the player or about a group of players.
1: Yeah, and you can see where the holes are in you know mm-hmm. either either your own knowledge, where you might just need to gather yeah. more information, and and sometimes too, it's just, I mean. Dude, we we rank like 500 players (laughs) for the draft. There's way more who we have information on, too. Just from whether it's from high school. We hate those ones though. The ones we don't rank, we hate them. Or college, or obviously if they're not in the top 10, they're. (laughs) That's the same thing. So, it's you know 900 players in the prospect handbook, all the international players. You just you can't keep track of all of that in your head. So
0: unless you're John Manuel or Jim Callis. I really think if I had, if I could add one tool to my repertoire, it would be the recall that those two have. Like I do not have a recall like that. And I don't understand how a mind can work that way. Just the memory to just to be able to just pull things constantly. Like I I always have to look down and check notes and look at what I've written previously or pull up video. Like I just can't think like that. I wish I could,
1: but yeah, just, you know, when you have so many, players it just writing it all down obviously as, as opposed to just having information in you know in your notes or, or in a spreadsheet however it is in your head writing just forces you to think more clearly and and organize your thoughts so just just going through that process can change how you feel about a player as opposed to just thinking it through in your own brain and trying to compartmentalize it that way Yeah. Check back next week
0: for our, uh, next writing seminar. But, um, in the meantime, let's dive into some listener questions. We got some good ones this week. We always have good questions. You guys uh, give fantastic questions to us and you can keep throwing them at us at all of our social channels at future pro pod on Twitter at Ben Badler on Twitter and Instagram at Carlos a Claus on Twitter. Um, throw them at us uh, at any point. If, if you guys send us a good one, we typically kind of just throw it in our show sheet and, Uh, Address them when the pod comes. But Bob on Twitter asks, um, or he says, I have a question. Uh, Have you guys ever given a prospect a low risk level or who was the lowest risk prospect ever? Um, I will throw this one to you, Ben, first, because you've been doing this longer. But I also asked this to just the general staff. And JJ gave a pretty thorough answer um, that I can go through after you kind of give your thoughts on this.
1: Have we ever given a... Yeah, I I think when we started the BA grades, we tried to use a, I think originally we had a grade called safe even, right? Yep, that is true. Which should not exist and no longer (laughs) exists because it's just not, I mean, I've never covered a can't miss prospect. I just despise that that term. (laughs) There are players who in retrospect did not miss, but there's <laughs> there's always some prob there some possibility that something will go wrong for a player and you just you don't know that ahead of time. So every player has some level of risk. So we we you know it was it was our first year coming up with the grades of you know we don't just want to put a single number grade on a player right because we could say well this player in Double A, who's 22 projects as a 60. And we think this, you know, 18 year old draft pick also projects to be a 60, but they have very different risk <laughs> levels. Yeah. Right. Or, or yeah, uh, we
0: don't just have an OFP for anyone who's listening and isn't aware of our BA grades. We have a, a number that Ben is talking about, and then we have a risk level that kind of pairs to combine an overall score. That is how we kind of view all the all the prospects that are in the handbook like collectively that's, that's yeah basically so it you know
1: every player we you know we write about them as a combination of strengths and weaknesses and, and they're also a combination of upside and and risk so you have to present both that if you're just going to rank players on pure upside you're, you're gonna have a lot gonna, more hits in
0: your list <laughs> or a lot well, more misses, yeah, i should say
1: yeah you're just gonna way overrate, <laughs> you know some very young far away players who um, will, will ultimately disappoint you. But, um, yeah, so I mean, we've, we've used the low risk grade before. I think we've generally shifted away from it more with, with exceptions. Now it it seems like if, all right, well, this guy projects to be a middle reliever and he's basically already done it in the big league, right? Like there's not, there's not a lot of risk of him getting to that, level so we'll use a low yeah and also
0: the the risk correlates to the role that we're projecting so it's not every player's risk means the same thing like if you're talking about a 40 low player that means low risk to reach this 40 role that we're talking about which is much different than if we threw a 70 low on a player which means low risk to get to franchise player number two starter which I'm just going over JJ's answer, which I can read through here, um, Ben, once you're finished, but Julio Tehran is a player who got a 70 low grade previously when BA as a whole was much more um, optimistic or uh, throughout lower risk more so than we do now. There was a course correction at some point that was made.
1: I think I put, I think originally I might've turned in Vlad jr. As an 80 low. <laughs> and I think we changed it to maybe, I think we changed it to 80 medium if i remember yeah. right but that i may just also have been irrationally in love with <laughs> Vladimir I, Guerrero I remember
0: the first time that i when i read your your Vladimir Guerrero report i think that was the first time i had encountered an 80 hit tool that was put on someone and i was like man ben is like really he he really uses the full scale he's really optimistic here and i was like wait no like you just got to use it. the skills there for a reason. If you got a player that good, you use it. So that one looks, it looks, it holds up
1: pretty well. Yeah. But I think in general are the guys we did put low risk grades on, particularly mm-hmm. if, if we're not talking about a, you know, a 40, 45 type player. Like mm-hmm. if we said this guy was going to be, you know, 55 or better, and we put a low risk grade on them generally, I, I don't know that that had a great
0: outcome. I'm going to read through JJ's answer that he gave in our, our Slack, just because I feel like it hits on um, your question. It gives a few examples as well. Uh, but JJ said, and much of this is what Ben kind of was talking about, but JJ says, we've calibrated and recalibrated the BA grades over the years. In our first couple of years, we were quite optimistic. The BA grades arrived in the 2012 book, and at the time we had a safe rating. We also used low risk ratings freely, including for pitchers. Julio Tehran was a 70 low. Aroldis Fiscaíno was a 60 medium, even though he'd had multiple injuries by that point. Mike Trout was a 75 low. In hindsight, that one looks good. Jesus Montero was a 70 low. In hindsight, that one doesn't look quite as good. Uh, Liam Hendricks was a 50 low. Uh, I would say in that first book, the 50 high line we have now as the mass of the book was more of a 50 medium or 55 high. So most of the players basically have that grade, is is basically what JJ is saying there. Um, Here's what we soon learned. The safe slash low ratings were often used for low ceiling players, uh, think utility infielders and relief pitchers, who had already reached the majors. That seems to make some sense, but the reality is that Tyler Pasternicki is a fringe big leaguer, so he's not really safe as far as risk unless you make him a 35 safe, which is an up and down big league ceiling. Throwing a 40 low on a fringe reliever is again less accurate because those pitchers often end up being up and down guys. Some examples JJ has of low players we've had. Brandon Laird was a 45 low. DJ Mitchell was a 45 low. Adam Warren, Colin Cowgill, Eduardo Sanchez were 45 low, 45 low, and 50 low. Lance Lynn was 50 safe. Eric Surkamp, 50 low. Matt Moore, 75 safe. What a gaudy grade that is. (laughs) Bryce Harper, 80 low. He was so
1: nasty. that His first couple years, though,
0: man. Yeah. Uh, JJ goes on to say, we've gotten much more reticent to put a low risk on anyone, especially pitchers, and we eliminated the safe rating while adding a very high risk. The tricky part is the guys who are actually safe or low risk are the absolute stars, but they are low risk to be solid big leaguers. It's hard to say anyone is low risk to be one of the best players in the game. Shohei Otani and Ronald Acuna were medium risks in 2018. Both were 75s. Vlad was an 80 medium in 2019. There you go, Ben. I had that one tamped down. Uh, I could see Vlad being a 65 low at that point, but 80 medium is a better grade for Guerrero and a more informative one than 65 low would have been. Looking at this year, I think it's fair to say Adley Rushman, Bobby Witt Jr., or Julio Rodriguez could all be low risks if you want to lower the ceiling. I think Rutschman is low risk to be a 55, same with Witt and J-Rod, but that's not the most useful grade and it's hard to limit a player's reasonable ceiling to lower the risk. So nowadays the only players who are low risk are largely lower ceiling players who are already in that role. Kyle Isbell is a 45 low and is the only low in the 2022 prospect handbook, I believe. So that is what JJ says. I think that answers the question and hopefully gives some insight into how we kind of do the BA grades. Um, So thank you you for the question. You said Bryce Harper was an 80 low, right? Yeah. Bryce Harper, 80 low. Okay. That one worked
1: out. Yeah, it did.
0: (laughs) Man, I would oh, be yeah. terrified to put that grade on
1: some. We, we, we should have, oh man, we should have put Trout as an 80. Yeah. 70, 70, 75. Oh, what a we, hedge. Had
0: to, we had Harper one and Trout two, right? In our top 100, I believe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Dang. Stuff. <laughs> Trout. Yeah. That's just uh, the 75. Go with an 80. <laughs> Not Once a half grade fan, Ben. Yeah. I, I don't go 75 on Vlad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ryan on Twitter. He says, who do you guys think the best college hitter is in this draft? Last year, it was pretty safe to say Henry Davis, but now we have a stacked group of Brooks Lee, Chase DeLauder, Jace Young, and more. Um, I would maybe argue, quibble a little bit with the idea that, like, Henry Davis was clear, clearly the best college hitter. I think certainly if we're going back at this point in time for that class, no one would have pointed at Henry Davis to say he was the best entering the year, um, but certainly he was the top. College hitter at the end of the day. So just a minor quibble there. But this year, I guess it depends on what you mean by best hitter. And we have this conversation pretty consistently um, in the office when we're talking about players. Are you talking about best pure hit tool, or are you talking about best overall offensive value, which I think are two different things? Um, and and for this question, for one, I think if you're talking about best pure hitter, which generally I would think of if if you If you gave it to me in that way, like best pure hitter, that implies like some sort of hit tool or bat-to-ball skills um, that another wording wouldn't, that would probably be Brooks Lee or Jacob Berry. Just a little preview for our best tools list. We we poll scouting departments and vote on all these best tools. And Brooks Lee and Jacob Berry are the two who are getting the most votes for that category with Brooks Lee being in front. But if you're talking about power, um, on base percentage, uh, just a, a way the way that hitters um, take pitches and control the zone, just everything involved in being a good offensive player. Um, I think you could entertain a few more players. Chase the Louder certainly would be in that conversation based on his bat-to-ball ability, walk rate, zone control. Um, but it's tougher too because he doesn't have the track record of, of playing in a bigger conference. I think the four that I would look at for this would be Brooks Lee, Jace Young, Chase Louder, and Jacob Berry. Um, and I would say probably either Brooksley or Jacob Berry for that. But again, I think it's close. You can make different arguments if you want it. Ben, do you have any thoughts on this one? I think you, I think you know those guys pretty well. <laughs> All right, we'll go to the next one. Cody Duncan on Instagram. He asked, do you think Lonnie White Jr., um, a 2021 Pirates draft pick, has the potential to be a top 100 prospect by year's end? And ben, I think you know Lonnie White Jr.
1: pretty well, so I'll throw this one at you. I think he could be. Um, I don't expect him necessarily to be, but I, I think he has the. I think he has the upside, if it's not this year, but to at some point develop into that type of guy. Um, you know, multi-sport athlete coming out of high school. Uh, Pirate second-round pick was playing, could have played. You know, football and baseball at. Penn State was, you know, a basketball player too. I mean, six three. I think he could have played wide receiver. He looks more like a tight end man. He's a physical, strong dude, Uh, but he's also a, a plus runner. um, Center field. I don't. He looks more like a corner outfielder, but he. I don't know. I'd, I'd put him in center field, and at least just try to keep him there for, for as long as he can. I think ultimately he'll, he'll probably um you know just be a a corner outfielder who can defend pretty well there but um he's got plus raw power um he's you know he's he's spent a lot of time focusing on a whole bunch of different sports but uh, i don't think he's i don't think he's raw by by any means um there's you know a lot of strength obviously there bat speed uh power it's you know he's hit well in in games. So uh, I think there's, there's a lot of things to, to like, and obviously the pirates draft strategy was to save some money with that first overall pick and, and spread it around. And I think he's, you know, obviously one of the guys who's I think, worth it to, um, you know, spend some, some money uh, or to be one of those guys to, to spread the money around too. So I, I think he does have the upside to get to, that level but i don't know that i would expect him to to be there necessarily by by the end of this year uh
0: we also have two more questions um both about an international draft uh christopher on instagram asks assuming an international draft is in the new agreement um referring to the cba how quickly could it be put into place and then norberto on instagram asks how would an international draft work what are the pros and cons um, for that question specifically, I would also just point to one of the first podcasts we did on this feed where Ben went in depth into a lot of like the interna- international draft, the why it was coming, pros and cons, like Ben probably covered that more thoroughly in that episode than we will here. Um, but I'll just throw both of these to you, Ben, um, because you are an international expert and people, I mean, we've gotten a ton of questions about the international draft. I think for whatever reason, the draft itself just makes it more interesting, or maybe it's more accessible to fans, or maybe it's just on their minds because it's it's frequently talked about in CBA negotiations, but a lot of attention on an international
1: draft. I think they could put it into place next year or or for the next signing class. So, like, like I guess it's the the, the next signing class will be what's called. or or what people who work in baseball will call the 2022 signing class because it originally would be july 2nd 2022 when those players would sign but obviously july 2nd 2022 is right in the middle of the current signing class which obviously got moved back uh start which started on january 15th this year and goes through december 15th so that Uh, you know, certainly is getting moved back. Uh, But, you know, like, like we're talking about, there is no CBA yet for (laughs) the next signing class. So we don't know if it's going to be a draft yet, or if it's going to be the current system or some other type of international free agency. But if they come out of this, let's say the negotiation ends in February or March, I, I think they could just do an international draft with this next class and just do it in, you know, I, I don't know exactly when on the calendar that they would do it, but the day you know, after
0: the amateur draft, Ben, let's make it happen.
1: Just to have like a big, super <laughs> draft back. futures game, all-star yeah. game, home run derby draft. And then me and you will both
0: uh, go on vacation that week and see what BA does.
1: Yeah. And then we'll go right to the PG national showcase right after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I, I think, yeah, I think they could do it again. I don't know exactly when on the calendar they would do it. But if, if they come to an agreement in the next you know few months, I don't see why they couldn't have an international draft for this, quote unquote, 2022 class in, say, March or February 2023, the longer it goes. And certainly I hope we're not in a situation where we're here in July. Talking about CBA negotiations because they haven't come to an agreement yet.
0: Hopefully, but we're just
1: talking about the CBA that's made and maybe criticizing that instead. The if yeah if, if you know if they were still in a lockout at that point, then it all right. Then your window to put a draft into place, I think, shortens for this "quote unquote" 2022 class. um I, I think there's also some debate among. The clubs, not necessarily the owners themselves, but among just club personnel who work in international scouting of, all right, if if we, if they, if they have a draft, do we want it to come right away for just like, let's roll, let's do it for the next class and let's all go out and just scout everybody again for this, you know, this upcoming 2022 class Uh, or you know, look, realistically, these guys have had the, the players in that class, a lot of them, the, the top players, or who we think, or who the teams think are the top players at, at that point, have been committed to sign with a club for, you know, a year, multiple years in in some cases. So do you want all that work you did to go out the window? <laughs> uh, do you want to have to be running around to go scout all those players again? Um, you know, I don't know if the owner, the, the owners are the one that are at the bargaining table, right? So uh, I don't think they really care so much. So, um, you know, we could see, I, I, I think we could see the draft right away. Uh, but I also think there's some possibility that, you know, maybe the GMs are, or at least in the owner's ear, uh, or GM president, whatever their title is now to say well all right let's let's at least let's just have like one buffer year and then we could put an international draft in place for for the following year
0: so either way it sounds like it could come pretty quickly um we'll have to wait and see what happens with the cba if we do get an international draft then then obviously we can dig into
1: the details but um there was you... a was there a second question too or I didn't mean to well, pitch the off. second
0: question was how would an international draft work, and I kind of just threw to one of our earlier podcasts where you broke a lot of that down and where we talked about that more in depth. You can you can talk about that as well if you want, though. What are any any also says what are the pros and cons? So, uh,
1: I guess it depends who you are. <laughs> of course, certainly, does someone someone's, and someone's pros is
0: another man's cons.
1: Yeah, so I, I I think the way I don't know how many rounds it it would be. Um, And I don't know that MLB cares a ton on on, on just on the exact number of rounds, but I think they would want to go through a a sufficient number of rounds where you can at least, you know, have have the top players get picked through the draft, and then after the draft there will be some, you know, pool of of players where you could sign, you know, you could still sign non-drafted free agents, but, you know, just like there is in – in the draft, in, in the States, there's a limit to how much you can spend on on those players. I do think, and I, I wrote about this a couple, maybe three years ago now, and I, I think we talked about it on that podcast too, is that it, it likely would be hard slotted, I, I would think. Um, I know that was Hooray. talked about before because, in, in part, if, if you set up the slotting system, in an international draft in the same way you have in in the draft, the United States, the owners would crush the players in terms of leverage because be college senior signs everywhere, basically. Right. It right. I mean, you would have in, in the draft. All right. If, if you draft, um, you know, a high school player, you know, the player can say you know what i'm not I don't want to sign with you i'm going to go to college instead uh, or i'm going to, go to junior college wherever you, you have alternatives, you have options, you have some. negotiating leverage uh, obviously you don't have the same freedom that an international player currently has albeit certainly in a hard cap system, but right now as an international player, you have the ability to choose your employer so. Obviously there's a con and that that goes away if if you're a a player. Um, but if just looking at the slotting system, yeah, if, if a team now drafts a you know, a player from, you know, a 16, 17-year-old player from Venezuela, and the slot value is let's say one million dollars, but it's a flexible slot like it is in the drafts here in the states. Like, what, what do you think the owner of the Oakland A's is going to, is he going to say, yeah, let's just pay him a million? No, he's going to say, let's, let's offer, or or any, most other owners, they're going to say, no, why are we offering him a million dollars? Why don't we just offer him $300,000? And what what is he going to do? Go back to Venezuela for another year and then go back into the draft and then repeat this whole process again? Like, no, he's not going to do that or is he going to go to Vanderbilt or or NC State, University of Miami, like is he going to go play in the SEC? Like no, he's not going to do that either. It's not really an option. So so the player has no leverage, but if you do hard slot it, then you, like as a player, you at least all right, you, then you say, all right, if if you're the Cleveland Guardians and you draft this player and the slot value is a million dollars, you have to pay him, you know, assuming again, the physical drug testing, all that, you know, standard stuff. If, if you draft him, then you have to pay him that slot amount. There's not going to be a negotiation. You can't low ball. Now, you know, you can't pay him over the slot either. You're not going to be maneuvering your bonus pool money around the way you do in, in the draft here in the States, but a, as a player that at least ensures some semblance you know some semblance you're 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 at least guaranteed that money so i i think that's how the slotting system would work the the order is what i'm curious about because i know they had talked and 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 that's obviously still a conversation that they're having about what they're going to do with the draft order you know in in the summer for you know for high school and college players but i am curious what the order ultimately ends up looking like for an international draft because at one point they had talked about doing it by division and and rotating the divisions um as having the top picks each year which I, I think the some some of the reaction was like oh like that sounds so silly why are they doing it but the idea is and i don't know that i love the idea But just just the idea of, all right, well, let's not give the Pirates the first pick in the draft so they can get Henry Davis or whoever they want, and then let's also give them the first pick in the draft so they can get, you know, Christian Hernandez too, right? Like, (laughs) we we you know, I'm already not a fan of just doing the draft based on reverse order of winning percentage and rewarding teams for, Uh, Whether you want to call it making bad decisions or just losing, um, which, uh, you know, know, you're you're rewarding them for losing by giving them access to better players. So why we should not reward teams doubly so Mm -hmm. for losing by also giving them access to better players in an international draft. So I think we will, whether it's that system or, or something else, I think we will see some type of mechanism in place to ensure that the worst teams in baseball are not just doubling up mm-hmm. on on the best picks in both drafts.
0: well there you have it ben uh thank you for breaking that down hopefully that answered your questions um from from everyone who sent in questions uh, those are all we have for today for this week um thank you again for taking the time to just send those in guys we really appreciate it, it makes the pod a lot more fun um that does it for us this week um thanks for listening to the whole thing if you are still here and listening it's it's um very much appreciated ben is there anything that you want to tease out or to push to listeners or to plug before we get out of here
1: to plug uh plug in your phones plug in your devices <laughs> like if you're if you're go. in the northeast right now man we're about to get uh slammed so make sure all your devices are charged so that you can, uh, do important things like listen to our podcast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Love that. Love that. Um, I will plug, uh, Teddy and Joe's college work on the website again. Um, definitely check that out. It's a very thorough overview of the college season as we're entering the year. Um, if you're excited for the college season, like we are, uh, that'll help you prepare for it. So check that out. There are a few exciting things on the way um that could impact the podcast or that will impact the podcast that we're doing here as well that we'll kind of keep under wraps for now uh but be on the lookout for that and uh be on the lookout for the next episode we are uh we're grateful for everyone who's listened who's rated who's reviewed the podcast thank you so much if you feel inclined to do that um we would very much appreciate you so for ben i'm carlos thanks for listening everyone see you next time